0: Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a breakout social media star in New York's Hasidic community. And speaking of Jewish women who are role models, we're going to hear from the producers of a new documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us today. An assistant professor of sociology at Ohio State University, Natasha Quadlin, conducted an audit study exposing a truth that some people seem to be shocked by, but probably not most women. Quadlin submitted 2,106 applications for jobs described as appropriate for new graduates—college grads, that is. Now, the only information she changed on the applications were the applicant's grades, gender, and undergraduate major— Per her findings, men's grade point average didn't seem to matter to employers much at all. But while women applying for the same jobs benefited from moderate academic achievement, they were actually penalized by having high levels of achievement. Yes, you heard that right. Women with high GPAs were less likely to be called back regarding employment in their fields of study. This is one of those times when my heart might move faster than my brain, so let me state this as calmly and as clearly as I can. To be a woman in this country is to be constantly judged by how you make people feel instead of what you can do for people. What does that mean? It means that women in the workplace—brilliant women— are more likely to be judged by their employers based on their general likability than by their accomplishments or contributions to the company they work for. Not only that, but the idea that women of high achievement are inherently unlikable and therefore lack value is fueled by the same misogynistic thinking that leads to women and girls having to fight for access to education and working opportunities around the world. This is how it works in far too many workplaces. Men get respected, women, hopefully, get liked. And we all suffer. How a country treats its women is a great predictor for how successful that country can be. So to the men who are too intimidated by strong women to compete with us in the workplace, know this—you can't do it without us, even if you wish you could. Next up, we're going to talk with Adina Miles, a.k.a. Flatbush Girl, about the power of women in the Jewish Orthodox community. And later, a new film about another Brooklyn woman who's broken a few barriers, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. That's all coming up. All media bring into sharp relief the divisions between tradition and modernity. But social media is a special animal in this way. Plastering your face and your thoughts all over the Internet? There's just no precedent. So let's face it. It makes the more traditional among us a bit uncomfortable. Nowhere is this more true than in the traditionally cloistered Orthodox Jewish communities of Brooklyn, especially when it's a woman doing the plastering. Our next guest is trying to break down some of these barriers. Under the moniker Flatbush Girl, she's a social media sensation among Orthodox Jews. And she also runs a successful consulting firm, Flatbush Media. She's also the star of a video story in our sister show, Going In with Brian Vines, which premiered Wednesday night and can be seen online at Brick TV on YouTube. Right now, we're excited to have her here in the studio in person. Welcome Adina Miles to 112VK. Hey, what's up? How are you? I'm fantastic, Adina. You come in here so bright and shiny and light up my host studio and I'm really happy about that. I'm so glad I can do that for you. Now, I live in Flatbush. Tell me a little bit about how Flatbush girl got started. Um,
1: so, kind of started where I wanted to create my own marketing company. Mm-hmm. I felt that I had what it took with my background as having um, a master's in literature, creative writing. I felt that I had what it, take, it took to be creative and help mm-hmm. tell stories, storytell. And I wanted to utilize that professionally and help brands tell their story on social media. And when I begun, there was a lot of resistance to someone who is a no-name person, has no previous clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, like, trying to make my name, and it was proving very difficult. Right. And then I was like, one second, maybe I have to do this a little backwards. Mm-hmm. Maybe I have to first get my name out there by entertaining the audience, kind of right. drawing them in with humor and laughter and some subtle messages sprinkled in between the jokes. Right. And then once I have that platform for my name, kind of showing that as my magnum opus to my potential clients and then drawing them in that way. And so I kind of did it that way and it worked.
0: So you like became the example of what you can do. Exactly. Essentially. I like that. I like that. You know what scientists experiment on themselves all the time. Don't let you don't let them tell you any different. That's how we figure things out. Exactly. So for those who aren't following you, who are obviously missing out. Um, What can they expect to find on your social feed, on your Instagram, in your stories? Like, what is Flatbush Girl out in the city doing? Okay, so I know this sounds a little funny, but the way I
1: create and communicate with my audience is in a very haphazard, spontaneous (laughs) way. (laughs) It's not like we sit there and storyboard and reverse engineer what we're going to be putting out for the audience and that I know exactly what I'm going to be doing. Mm -hmm. I really play it by ear. So I wouldn't say that there's anything you can like definitely expect because it's really like a day by day, you know, seize the moment kind of thing. But I guess like the spectrum of it, the broad spectrum of it Mm -hmm. would be me trying to create social commentary that can resonate -hmm. Through humor, um, because humor is a soft way to, you know, kind of break down a mess.
0: Exactly. Yes, it is. Exactly. Yes, it is. You know, when
1: you see the truth, people's defense mechanisms go up, their antennas Mm -hmm. go up, and they're like, one second, we're not allowed to listen to this information. Right. You know? Um, Oh, she's speaking about change and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, nonconformity, and that's dangerous. So Mm -hmm. if you say it in a humoristic way, That's kind of what my goal is, to sprinkle in these nonconformist messages and really empower young girls. That is my main target, the girls who are still in elementary school, who are being um, told uh, amazing messages about, you know, their sense of independence and their abilities and their strengths, but the teachers are not going all in. Right. There's always, like, that fake ceiling, and I'm trying Mm -hmm. to break the ceiling so that they know, like, your teachers are saying your ceiling is here, your ceiling is much higher
0: than that. Yes, absolutely. I like that. And it sounds to me like if people come to your social feed, there is something that they can expect, and that's a level of authenticity and a level of encouragement and maybe even empowerment a little bit.
1: I think so. I think that they'll also see— Someone who's really not afraid of hate. Mm -hmm. Um, I get a lot of hate. I get a lot of DMs, private messages from anonymous names, Mm -hmm. sometimes not anonymous. Um, I get emails. I've even gotten phone calls. uh, People trying to scare me into you know stopping to speak my truth.
0: Are these people within the Hasidic community?
1: Um, I wouldn't say necessarily one type of community, but Mm -hmm. basically under the umbrella of religious Jews. Mm. And they feel like they're protecting their clan by making me be quiet. And really, my goal is not as extreme as they believe it is. My goal is not to shatter the system. (laughs) My goal is not to have people, like, you know, just say, like, Laissez-faire, right. we're not doing any of this. I think that there is a very important role in tradition, in, in the family unit, in, mm-hmm. in, you know, in the culture, in our tribe. I right. think those things are beautiful. Um, it's just we it limits girls from really reaching their potential and understanding their power as females rather than their weaknesses as females.
0: You know, one of the things that I've found uh, recently—this is—it'll seem like an offshoot, but I promise I'm coming back. I got you. Um, you know, when all of these things came out about R. Kelly, and very recently there's been this mute R. Kelly thing— And one of the things that I noticed um, online and on Facebook or whatever, that a lot of the people, despite the fact that we're talking about really wanting to help save and protect girls, a lot of the people who were defending R. Kelly were women or young girls. Do you find that— some of what comes back at you is from the very people who you're like, you have to understand, we were girls. We know how hard it was to be girls growing up and wanting to, you know, work in certain industries and believe in ourselves certain ways. It's like, how come you can't really make the connection between what I'm trying to do here and your experience?
1: I I definitely hear you. I think there's a certain— I want to say bitterness Mm -hmm. that comes from the women who see me doing what I do and thinking to themselves like, but I couldn't do that. So how come you're allowed to Mm -hmm. and not and them not recognizing that it takes so much, you know, strength to keep muscling through all the backlash. So I think that that bitterness is unfortunate because rather than being bitter, they can really, you know, channel it to support. Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do so that we can pave the way for the future generations.
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, And, yeah, I would say most of the the backlash is from females. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not coming from a place of bitterness, it does come from a place where they are trying to protect the tribe. It's just a little misguided, in my opinion. They think I'm misguided, which I understand. I think they're misguided.
0: (laughs) Different strokes for different folks, you know? But there has to be some place we can meet in the middle. And I think you're actually— creating that space I'm um, trying to. through your channel, which is super interesting to me. But one of the things that was really striking to me about the going in video with Brian Vines that you did was your image being altered in that local newspaper. And it was a Hasidic newspaper, I believe. I, I, I can't right. remember if that was specified. Right. Um, but can you tell us about that experience? I, To be perfectly sure. honest, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know okay. that having the photo yeah. blurred out in the newspaper would even be a thing that would happen.
1: I know. It seems so archaic. It does. Like, especially within our modern world, where, right. like, this isn't even a question of equality. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost being, like, degraded to a level of being inhuman. Right. So it seems so, so backwards. Um Basically, what what happens is is that when you have the very religious m- magazines, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily Hasidic, non-Hasidic. It's just very just con- religious. Yeah, just consider yeah. it under the religious umbrella. Right. There, I understand them. Like they want to limit certain kinds of feminine photos mm-hmm. that seem sexually expressive. Right. But in order to do that, where are not being a gray area. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to do that would just be to say. No females, right? Because then that eliminates all, all nuance, right? So that's kind of the policy, and um, and that's how they keep their their advertisers. Right. These these are free magazines where the advertisers are the ones who are covering the costs for the printing and right. management, and these very and yeah. So I, my my photo was in the newspaper, but mm-hmm. it was covered by a smiley face, right? Which, you know, and I when I advocate for the feminine presence mm-hmm. in magazines, I, I I understand that there's so much nuance, and so my beginning battle is not even like full blown photos. Like, mm-hmm. let's just start with neck up photos. Right. Let's not erase faces. Like a right. face is is your soul. A yeah. face is you. Like, don't dehumanize a person to that extreme.
0: I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. Um, I want to switch a little bit from Flatbush Girl into Flatbush Media, (laughs) okay, because you're doing it, girl. This company that you wanted to start, you've done it. You've started it. Give me a description about what you do at Flatbush Media.
1: So I kind of help bring— brands that are not familiar with social media Mm -hmm. into the digital age, I have the sensitivities in place to understand, from their perspective, like, the kind of ways they want to, you know, portray themselves on social media, because it Mm -hmm. is a tricky place for a Jewish brand to be. Absolutely, yeah. And so I have that sensitivity, but at the same time, I have the, the ability to to know how to how to marry the two, right. how to blend you know the modernity and the and the moving forward and the progressiveness right. together with their sensitivities so that I can really help bring them to their audience on social media
0: do you ever have moments where um, you know Adina a flatbush media and Flatbush girl don't actually I mean, not necessarily—I don't want to say they they don't intersect personality-wise, because I know you've got to be a different person here than you have to be, you know, at a boardroom table. But do you find that Flatbush Girl in any way has gotten in the way of Flatbush Media? Because you—I mean, Flatbush Girl was used to build Flatbush Media, you know? And so people could understand exactly what you could do, which is phenomenal. But do some people go the other way because of Flatbush?
1: Definitely. I've had a lot of brands who say, listen, we see what you can do. Mm -hmm. We know you have the mind of someone we want to work with. But we don't want you. Mm. We don't want that you. So if you can kind of stay invisible as much as possible and just bring us your strategy Mm -hmm. and things like that and your team, which I— it, in the beginning, initially, this was hard for me. It was hard for me not to get defensive and protective over myself mm-hmm. and feel personally insulted. Right. But as the months have progressed—and it's really a, a consulting firm in its infancy. It's really— right. —almost only a year old. Right. You know, and we've gone from two clients to 12 clients, right. which was really great. But. You know, over those months, I've been able to build the muscle where I understand they're just operating out of fear, Mm -hmm. and that kind of engenders sympathy for me rather than feeling defensive. I understand that they're operating out of fear, and and it's really my privilege and duty Mm -hmm. to put my needs aside Mm -hmm. and make myself selfless and put my personality and my needs aside to -hmm. help grow their business. That is what they asked me to do.
0: That makes sense. Like, I, I totally get, like, how being professional sometimes really does mean, you know, stepping back personality because you're not the focal point. Right. What happens when companies leave?
1: You know, it's, it's hard to hear from a company words like—and I've actually—I did a post about this recently where mm-hmm. this, this month I had two clients leave me mm-hmm. um, who told me that they love my work. They love the work ethic, they love the communication, they love the customer service, and they're happy with the metrics, Mm -hmm. but they are afraid of what people will say about them if they continue to work with me. Mm. So, you know, that's their fear and their inability to overcome their fear. Um, And they're not even speaking from a place of, like, proof. Like, we're talking about—let's say they'll have one anonymous phone call from someone saying— I'm not going to shop in your store anymore if you keep using Flavish Girl. Right. And they go, oh, no, 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 we, we can't have this. And they right. they preemptively prepare themselves for some sort of backlash, which I personally think would never happen. Yeah, I
0: can't imagine. Like, what would the backlash be about? Like, I don't know. Maybe they imagine, <laughs> like, people in the streets, like, you know. Uh, you know which, you know, I, I got to tell you, listen, now, I've just recently become familiar with Flavish Girl. But if somebody come down my street with some sort of anti-Flatbush girl poster, I would probably be like, you need bigger problems. You need much bigger problems because she's like, you're not doing anything wrong. But I I get how people feel. I know people feel different ways. You got to respect the way people feel. I'm just saying it seems to me like what you can do for a brand is so— going to be so much bigger, to be perfectly honest, than the possibility of what they could lose with that.
1: I agree. Uh, I personally agree. Mm-hmm. and um, but, but like I said, I understand. And my hope is that one day that they will eventually come back. And I also understand that there is just a natural attrition to the mm-hmm. client list. Um, but it's not like the clients are saying it, it has to do with their budget or their lack of seeing results. Like, they really are speaking from a place of they're just afraid to be, have the association. Right. Um, even when I am invisible, if mm-hmm. we're, we're to get out and travel right. through the grapevine, and it is a very insular community, they right. just don't want to handle that. But in addition to having the same perspective as you, like, you like you have way bigger problems right. to worry like, about— come on. Like, right? <laughs> I also would venture to say that if they had the muscle for it, they don't realize that that kind of controversy, that fake controversy, would be amazing for their brand.
0: I wasn't going to say it, but <laughs> here we are, Controversy with the truth, sells. with the truth, again, the truth with a smile. Um, how is your Flatbush girl identity right now? affecting larger parts of your life like with your family. Watching the video, your husband is clearly so supportive of he you really and is. he loves you so much. Yeah. You know, and you're a clearly such a great mom. Your kids yeah. seem so well cared for and so Thank well you. loved and like they know it. Like and you can see that right there. So being Flatbush girl also means being Flatbush mom. It means being a Flatbush CEO, it means being, you know, a Flatbush wife. It means being all these things at once. How do you bring all of those elements of you into her?
1: Um, Well, I would say the way I do that is by prioritizing my needs, Mm -hmm. my emotional, physical, spiritual, you know, evolutionary needs. Um, When I make sure that I'm okay and my needs are being met across the hierarchy, Mm -hmm. I am able to bring the best version of me to my family and to my followers, and to my children. And I think that it seems counterintuitive that selfishness can breed selflessness. Mm-hmm. And many people feel guilt over attending to their needs and attending mm-hmm. to what they need to nurture themselves. Right. And a lot of people put up blockades. You know, you know, I got to be there for my kids. Okay. I got to be there for my partner. I got to be there for my workers and my clients. Mm-hmm but if you are constantly prioritizing yourself which is just what I do it just works for me i'm not mm-hmm. saying it would work for everyone but i constantly make sure i'm doing what i need for me and then i have all the fuel i need to just give selflessly to the people around me it's like when yes. you're in an airplane and they give you those you know they give you that little tutorial yes. you got to put it your on your mask on first and then help the people around yes, you yes
0: you do that's the yeah. rule that's right. the rule so moving forward What are your big dreams, big goals for Flatbush Girl and for Flatbush Media?
1: You know, it sounds funny, but the way I live my life is really— I wouldn't even say day to day. Today, I would say hour to hour. Mm -hmm. I am constantly making myself, um, like, receptive Mm -hmm. to pivoting to right. changing directions, to listening closely to, like, the wind and the things around me and the energies around me. I don't mean that in a metaphysical way. I mean yep. that, like, in a way of, like, this person networking with me or that opportunity coming my way. Right. Um, and so I really don't have a long-term goal mm-hmm. other than just something having to do with empowering young girls. Right. Right and somehow growing my business but other mm-hmm. than that the nuances the the between the lines all those things mm-hmm. i really just allow it to change and evolve naturally day to day for me it's like art mm-hmm. for me it really is like you know waking up and seeing what's on the canvas and saying like oh like i now i see it needs that brush stroke and being right. willing to be so nimble right. has always allowed for I don't know, just optimization. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes,
0: because things come into your life because you're open to them sometimes. Exactly. And you don't miss them. You see them because you're open to them. When you close right. yourself off, you don't know when they're coming, but when you're open, anything can come. Exactly. Anything can happen and you sort of build your dream on the way up. Right. So let me ask you one more question, because right there, like, we have the future, but right now, in the present, what do you think your role is within the Orthodox community?
1: So I think my role is to kind of show people that there really isn't a real repercussion, like they might think, Mm -hmm. for being who you are, whether you're male or female. There's a lot of things set in place to keep people in line within the community, and I understand that that's integral to having a close-knit community that has each other's back. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, a lot of the private schools have certain rules that, right. you know, that spill over into your home, mm-hmm. into the kinds of um, technology that you can have in your home. And sometimes people stay within the lines in order to uh, like to continue to have their children enrolled in these schools or their you know their affiliations with their synagogues have certain rules and I'm kind of just trying to show them in baby steps like I don't really ascribe to any of those Mm rules I make my own rules for myself right and I haven't really suffered Mm-hmm. As they envision one would suffer right. if you make your own rules so i 'm kind of trying to turn myself into a living form of i guess art yes. to say like "Look at me, like look what i 'm doing i like, 'm doing these things that yes result in backlash, mm-hmm. yes result in finger pointing and maybe and defamation." but it 's okay i 'm still rising, right. like the direction of going up is still up to me, yes, and you can do that regardless of how much heat is coming your way mm-hmm. and and you know something that 's interesting though about flapfish Girl is that like and I think you i, I don 't know like i 'm reading you a little bit, and I feel like maybe. maybe you're waiting for like the jokes or the humor or something no, <laughs> no. but i don't i 'm actually not that much of a funny person yeah. it's really it 's like funny because I use humor only because i recognize how strong it is in yes. letting people's defense mechanisms come down it's a tool
0: it's definitely a tool
1: like i'm really not funny yeah
0: so but you are <laughs> even if you don't think of yourself as funny which i actually think of you as funny okay, but that's fine <laughs> but if you don't think of yourself as funny what you are is an effective communicator and a really Thank good you. messenger Thank you. and you have good timing And good timing is requisite for good humor. So when you land, you land, girl. And you do it well, to be perfectly honest. It's been fantastic having the opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you so much. I cannot wait to see what continues to happen in your life because I've got a good feeling.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
0: My pleasure. So far, today's show has been focused on women and the barriers society erects in the way of their success, no matter how smart, educated, or qualified they are. The subject of our next segment is no different. It's about a woman who wanted to enter a male-dominated field and encountered resistance, but persevered, only to become one of the most recognizable, most influential, most notorious women in Washington. And she got her start right here in Brooklyn. Of course I'm talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And recently, producer Ross Tuttle sat down with Julie Cohen and Betsy West, the creators of the new documentary about RBG's life, which will be premiering in theaters around the city this week. Here's that conversation.
2: So Julie and Betsy, thank you for joining us today. We're happy to have you here. Um, Julie, when I met you at the Sundance Pre-Party, I was excited to hear more about this film and this incredible woman. Um... I want to know first, um, you know, it seems like an amazing score to be able to do a film about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, How did it happen?
3: Well, both Julie and I had interviewed Justice Ginsburg for separate projects, Uh, mine in 2011 about the modern women's movement, Julie several years later for her documentary, The Sturgeon Queens. Mm. And um, so in we had talked about Justice Ginsburg over the years and really had had begun to notice her growing fame as the notorious RBG in the wake of some very powerful uh, dissents that she had issued from the bench. So, in 2015, one day, we were talking and saying— this is an incredible story, but many of her fans don't know the full story. They don't know her history. They don't know her amazing love story. And someone should do a documentary. Mm-hmm. It should be us.
2: And was this before seeing her face spray painted on the sidewalk and those stencils with the, with the <laughs> crown and, and
4: all? You know, I think yeah. it was actually just around just, the time yeah. that all that was happening. Like, we understood that there was a population of young women in particular who were really obsessed mm-hmm. with— RBG and sort of her persona, but at the same time that didn't really know the full story and everything that she had done early in her career in the 1970s as a lawyer to secure equal rights for the genders under the U.S. Constitution, an amazing accomplishment, an amazing body of law that she really was at the forefront of creating. And so, I guess we sort of took the crown stuff as a teachable moment, as, as people say, to kind of, like, l- let's take this opportunity to look at the full story, to tell her whole life then and now. Professional and personal, mm-hmm.
2: and I and, and I and I like that in the film that you do you do present that and how she wasn't welcome in this in this clique of lawyers, right? And it was her, I guess, her husband encouraged her, um, you know, and backed her to be, you know, who she could be, um, and you know, really powerful and really ahead of her time, in and.
3: She—Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, graduated at the top of her class at Columbia Law School, but she came out and could not get a job. Mm. Uh, she eventually became a professor. At the same time, the women's movement was growing, and some of her students asked her to look into the area of women's law, and she quickly discovered that women had second-class citizenship in this country. I mean, if you were a woman, uh, you couldn't get credit without your husband signing on. You could be fired if you became president pregnant, and men were never prosecuted for raping their wives. Uh, And so, she began a project to systematically bring a series of cases that would challenge this kind of discrimination. By the time she got done with it, she really had— Changed the law for American women.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow! And so she was, um, you know, help me place her in the um, in the pantheon, I guess, of the of Supreme Court justices. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor was the first the first, first woman. RBG
4: was, RBG was number two. Number two. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, so she followed in, in those in those footsteps, but she's really kind of carved her own her own path in in the court.
4: Absolutely. I mean, yeah. she, she would tell you that Sandra Day O'Connor really was quite welcoming to her in mm-hmm. her early days. I think it wasn't an easy Wrote a hoe for Justice O'Connor being one woman among nine. Um, maybe a small but symbolic uh, example was that when RBG became a justice, um, O'Connor so- showed her the her trend that she had started of wearing a jabot, a collar, a fancy collar, mm-hmm. r- trying to move away from the sort of austere maleness of the black robe, which is really mm-hmm. such a man's outfit designed for a man. Right. O'Connor had started putting on some nice fancy collars, Ruth Bader Ginsburg took up that and and ran with it. It could seem like a silly example, but the point was it's it's symb- it's symbolic, like this is this is a woman's place now too. It's not just this is not just a home for men.
2: Right. Sorry, you're going to
4: yeah, say. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, even though uh, Sandra
3: Day O'Connor was appointed by a Republican, uh, Justice Ginsburg appointed by a Democrat, uh, and uh, they had some common ground. Uh, When Justice Ginsburg first started on the court, she really was considered to be a moderate. And sometimes, she, very often, she would be in a majority with uh, Justice O'Connor. As the court has moved to the left—I mean, to the—excuse me. As the court has moved to the right, uh, Justice Ginsburg has not changed her positions, but she's really? further to the left. She's yeah. the
2: one shifting and yeah. the court's right. moving. Right, the court's Probably moving around,
4: around her. To oh, the right.
3: interesting. Yeah. And yeah. she's
2: had to be this—this voice. This so that's—I mean, tell me about—I want to talk about the film and your experience spending time with her. Yeah. Um, but just tell me real quickly about, sort of, um, Julie, maybe about the imprint that she's made on the spring. Court.
4: Absolutely. Well, you know, there's uh, so many areas you could, you could go. We tended to focus uh, largely on her women's rights cases. And, you know, after what she did in the 70s, once she became a Supreme Court justice, probably her most lasting legacy in terms of a majority opinion that she wrote was the Virginia Military Institute mm-hmm. case, where she wrote the opinion that opened up. This all male, federally funded uh, military institute to both genders. Like women can go there now because of her, and that. Decision laid out the general rule, which had never been dis- the court had never taken before, that a law that discriminates on the basis of gender should be presumed unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. That was what she was fighting for in the 70s. She finally like hit the nail in mm-hmm. uh, in her 1996 decision. More recently, she's become more well known for the dissents that she writes, right. uh, speaking out against. Um, often a conservative court majority ruling on certain things. And she writes a dissent that says— (laughs) Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, when we look back in history, I think, and we read those, we'll really see the sort of a guiding kind of um, conscience of of the left and progressive voice, which will be preserved and hopefully preserved in a greater sense. Um, To talk about the film, maybe a a small spoiler alert, um, but you guys kind of gave gave up the goods early on to seeing her working out in the gym. What was it like to film that and see this robust 84 year old woman? with the weights?
3: Well, you know, we were a little um, uh, hesitant to ask her to uh, let us film in the gym, so we waited for a while, and then finally we popped the question, and and she said, yes, I think that would be possible. So, a few months later, there we are, and um, she walked into that gym, ignored us, ignored mm-hmm. the two cameras, and just started what was a very impressive workout, yeah. just following the orders of her trainer, Brian Johnson. and. We were amazed and also, I think, instantly realized why she said yes. Mm. Um, Here she is. Badass. Yeah. And why not own it? You Mm -hmm. know, she's 85 years old and she's keeping herself in shape to Mm -hmm. do the job that she loves. And now she's an icon, not just for younger women, but for older women as well.
2: Right, right. That's great. Um, And what was her buy-in, Julie, with the film? I mean, how how involved was she and how much did she really kind of— Um, participate.
4: Yeah, Justice Ginsburg's participation in the film was kind of a slow, steady process. Mm -hmm. We first actually approached her in January of 2015, Mm -hmm. so quite a long time ago, with the idea of making a film about her life. Her answer at that time was essentially, uh, not yet. Mm -hmm. We decided to kind of move forward. A few months later, we let her know that we were intending to interview—even if we didn't need to do a sit-down interview with her, we were thinking that we would be interviewing her— Clients from her cases in the 70s, former colleagues over the years, some other people, and she sort of gradually um got on board with the idea that we were going to be filming about her life at one point she gave us um, a list of public events that she was going to be going mm-hmm. to some of which weren't didn't have cameras in them other yeah. than ours over the next year or so that she thought might make good filming opportunities and, like, um, yes, and so yes. it was almost yeah. just like um, step by step, step. by step <laughs> yeah. and just kind of by being yeah. there over time mm-hmm. sure. uh, that we we would eventually here we are <laughs> and you know all over the country too yeah. like here we are in Chicago, here right. we are in Virginia, like, wherever you go, Virginia. like—
2: well, what a great <laughs> there project yeah. to be able to follow over a course of it time. Was, yes. it, was,
4: yeah. it was great.
2: Um, and what, is, what does she make of the film?
4: Well, uh,
3: she uh, did not ask to see the film ahead of time, mm-hmm. uh, and so she came to Sundance for its premiere, mm-hmm. and she sat— In an audience of over 500 people, Mm -hmm. Julie and I sat across the aisle from her, which was, you know, quite a nerve-wracking hour and a half as we watched her every reaction. But it became pretty clear pretty soon that she was really responding very well to Mm -hmm. the film, and she— you know, she laughed, and at certain points she cried. Even a few places we were surprised at, she dabs her eyes when, in the early opera scene, there's a scene where she is uh, talking about the meaning of music and opera to her, and we're listening to a very beautiful love duet, and she mm-hmm. dabbed her mm-hmm. eyes. And at the end, we came down to do a Q&A, mm-hmm. and the first question to— you know, ostensibly to us, was what does Justice Ginsburg think of the film? And she just popped right up out of her seat and came down to the front. And, you know, we were um, happy. She said that she really uh, appreciated the film, that it exceeded her expectations, and we were— Relieved.
2: That's great. I need to point out, um, you know, and, and she mentions this in the film and in her confirmation hearings, she says, I'm Brooklyn born and bred.
4: Yes. Yes. And boy, is she proud of Brooklyn. Yeah. So, uh, yes, for the Brooklyn uh, home team, mm. um, she went to Madison High School mm. um, and is still a Brooklyn partisan. You know, her daughter— uh, still lives in Manhattan and is a professor at Columbia, so actually Justice Ginsburg is back in the New York area fra- right. fairly frequently mm-hmm. and will say that she was born and raised in Brooklyn at any opportunity. Mm-hmm. She likes to make the comparison that she and the Notorious B.I.G. have that fact right. uh, in common, that. that they're both Brooklynites. So
2: she embraces that. She, she yeah. really oh, yeah. embraces well, Brooklyn. She yes. Yes. And embraces being the Notorious— She
4: does. Yes, she she does. thinks it's funny uh-huh. Yeah, and great. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: That's great. So we'll hopefully get all the Brooklynites to come out to see the film. Um, how can they see it? When can they see it?
4: Yes. Well, starting on uh, May fourth, the film is opening in ten cities, and those ten the cities do include New York and Brooklyn specifically. How specific do I, do I get? Well, tell, uh, tell us what theaters. Uh, both BAM, Rose Cinemas, oh, and Alamo Drafthouse are awesome. going to be are opening on May fourth. I think there's even some preview screenings at Alamo on May third. So. Mm-hmm.
2: And eventually, it's going to be on CNN.
4: Eventually, in the fall,
3: uh, it will be on CNN, but it'll have a a theatrical run.
2: All right. Well, great. Well, thank you both so much for coming out and sharing this uh, lovely project with us and and the rest of of Brooklyn and the world. And we'll look forward to seeing it in theaters.
3: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back next week with conversations about gentrification, food justice, child welfare, and black political power. Hope you can join us. Have a great weekend. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shirin Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bagosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hogasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Isham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.